For the longest time, healthcare has come to know a certain population of patients, identifying them with such catchphrases as frequent flyers or high needs, high cost patients, or the 5% accounting for 50% of all healthcare spending in the U.S. But how much did healthcare really know about the individuals themselves and the very real issues contributing to poor health and high utilization of services? Fortunately, that's changing and there's now a great deal that can be said about the patients themselves and the types of interventions and social supports that can lead to better overall health. Over the past decade, IHI and many others have been working with healthcare organizations and communities to test new models of care for patients with complex needs. And now a lot of what's been learned by many, many actors, not just IHI, has been compiled into a new online resource called The Playbook, Better Care for People with Complex Needs. So how can this resource help you? That's our focus on this edition of WIHI. And I do want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're here for you now, live, bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. IHI developed the playbook with funding support from five foundations, the John A. Hartford Foundation, the Peterson Center on Healthcare, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the SCAN Foundation, and the Commonwealth Fund. It's now yours to dig into, and we're going to explain why and offer some wayfinders in just a few moments when we introduce our panel. But first, here's IHS John Gothier, and he's going to remind you how to take part in today's program. John. All right, Madge. Uh, thanks. I have a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of the screen is our chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on the WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program, by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by the guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on the program. Please take the time after, please take a quick time after the program to fill out our very quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Matt. All right. Thanks, John. We'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We do welcome tweeting during and after the program, and thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so others can take part in that online conversation. All right. To our panelists now, joining us by phone from Oregon, we've got Dr. David Labby, who is focused on building programs to improve care for complex Medicaid members for over 15 years. He's held a variety of senior roles and is currently an advisor to HealthShare of Oregon, a Medicaid coordinated care organization, all part of the state's health care transformation strategy. Welcome, David. Thank right. you. All right, you're there. I know you're there. Here in the studio with me is Jose Figueroa. How about that for my rolled R? He's an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and associate physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is also currently a research fellow at the Harvard Initiative for Global Health Quality and the Harvard Global Health Institute. Jose's main research interests include, among other things, understanding the needs of high-cost, high-need patients. Welcome, Jose. Thank you for having me. Also in the studio, across from me, Marion Burl Johnson. She's a director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and part of the IHI Innovation Team, where she researches, tests, and disseminates content to further IHI's strategic priorities. She also leads research and policy initiatives related to several Medicaid subpopulations. Welcome, Marion. 
Thanks, Madge. Happy Our, to be here. All right. Wonderful. So we've got two advisors to the playbook in David and Jose, among others, and one of its developers, Marion. Also, uh, not on mic, we've got Catherine Mather with us in the studio, who I know has played an enormous role with the playbook, and she's kind of helping us out here behind the scenes. All right. We're going to go right to Marion now. Uh, the good news is that you and the team here at IHI had a lot of information to work with, and the challenge that then became one of how to organize it in a way that would make sense and clarify. Um, resources are, can be amazing, and yet you really have to think through how is everybody really going to get to this information. So my first big question to you, Marion, is how do you hope the playbook can be helpful to the field right now, given all the work that's going on? How can a resource like this be helpful? Great. Thanks, Madge. <clears throat> and as you mentioned, the reason that the playbook was developed is that health system leaders, researchers, and policymakers recognize that this high-need, high-cost population, as it's sometimes called, is complex, dynamic, and heterogeneous. And many high-needs, high-cost individuals struggle with chronic physical and mental illness, poverty, social isolation, and also we're recognizing that many move in and out of the high-needs, high-cost category as their circumstances change. And then high utilization rates and poor outcomes in low patient and, sat and family satisfaction tell us that current systems of care are just not working for these individuals with complex health and social needs. So the playbook then is designed to be an evolving, curated online resource for health system leaders, payers, and policymakers with the ultimate goal of increasing investment in and, and capacity of value-based models of care. And also, to hopefully, you know, now and in the future, to showcase the value proposition for leading-edge efforts. The playbook was originally launched in December last year, December 2016, and on it you'll find evidence-based and experienced-informed resources on how to identify and segment this patient population at higher, highest risk of poor outcomes, detailed case studies on promising approaches, guidance on the business case for improving care for patients with complex needs, information on policy and payment reform opportunities, and then really practical how-to information, hopefully for organizations at all stages of their journey to transform care for this population. And the goal is to have all this information in one place for leaders and front, for people working at the front line. All right, so what we're going to do, we don't always get an opportunity here on WIHI to actually get into a website, click through, uh, but that's what we're about to do now, and we're going to have Marion, with Catherine's help, walk us through some of the features uh, on the website. You can see the link right here in the chat. Uh, just so you know, um, we, this is a compressed program, as many of you know, on WIHI. So we invite you uh, to uh, follow along as well as you can during the show. And please uh, spend some time uh, on the website yourself uh, afterwards. Uh, so take it away, Marion. So hopefully what you're seeing on your screen is the actual homepage of the website. You'll see kind of the blue and orange duotone uh, intended to represent sunrise and sunset, sort of the complexity of this challenge, but also the hope that the playbook might bring to visitors or users. And importantly, so the resources in the playbook are organized in three primary ways. The first is by these four key questions. So we, why invest in redesigning care for people with complex needs? Who are people with complex needs? What care models are promising? And what are the key design elements to redesigning care? And then if you click on one of these key questions pages, they're sort of further curated by sub-questions and then featured resources. And each key question page has a little bit of a brief overview of text um, stating the state of the issue and a little bit of the playbook's take on the current controversies in the issue. And then each individual resource is displayed as a tile card, as you'll see, with a, a title on one side and then what we're calling a teaser text on the other side. So if you kind of click on the info icon, you can get a little bit more information about what the resource is before actually clicking through. But then if you do click through to a resource page, they all currently for, uh, follow a standard format like this. And and they all have kind of an icon denoting the type of resource at the top, key questions answered, key themes and takeaways, the authors, the source, 
the population addressed, the level of evidence, and then the date added to the playbook. And as we'll talk about later in the program, there are going to hopefully be some different ways to access content as the playbook evolves. But as you can see, we examined and curated close to 100 resources, and then we're able to organize them either by these four key questions or in two other ways. One is by population segment, <clears throat> and the population segments we chose are uh, the National Academy of Medicine categories, which Jose will talk about in just a minute, and then also by the audience type. So whether you're a health system leader, payer, or policymaker, and we're also hoping that this is a piece of the playbook that's going to get a good deal more robust with the learning of self-learning of people who actually visit the website and see and seeing what roles they have and what they're most interested in. So that is an overview of the the playbook as it currently exists and one thing that we found in the initial analytics, which is part of the reason we structured the program this way, is that two of the most popular segments have been the who and the what. So for some reason, those two key questions are resonating much more with the field, which is why I'm so glad that we have Jose here and David to talk about those two. Okay. Thanks, Maj. All right. Thanks a lot, Marion and Catherine. And uh, it's great to see uh, kind of some a live sense of the website, and we do hope you'll take advantage of it. All right. All right, let's turn now uh, to Jose, and now we've got a, a few kind of still slides, <laughs> the type that you're uh, familiar with. And uh, Jose, uh, I want to make sure that we're all kind of uh, working off uh, the same, we often say the same playbook. Who are patients with complex needs? I know we've got some subcategories, and uh, then you're going to talk about kind of what sorts of categories best represent. But uh, do you think we're all talking about the same thing when we're talking about who are patients with complex needs? Actually, uh, that, that question is actually very important. Um, oftentimes, when, when people talk about taxonomy and segmentation, um, a big thing that you have to figure out is what is your intended purpose? Why do you want to uh, segment populations? Um, and, and actually, I'll, I'll describe uh, uh, some of the work that came from a recent three-part uh, workshop series at the National Academy of Medicine, where we where, where we did come up with a with a one working taxonomy, which is a very much work in progress, and, and we're excited to see what people will think about it. Um, but but uh, the first workshop actually uh, much of the time was spent is why are we segmenting the population? Is it for care planning? Is it for uh, designing interventions? Is, uh, is it is it is is the purpose to, to figure out how do we align a workforce that's appropriate to meet the needs of a population, um, and oftentimes is it or, or is it is it to reduce utilization, reduce costs? You can imagine that your purpose, uh, the purpose of your segmentation, will will very much influence um, how you how you want to break up people into groups. So, for example, if you're very much interested in reducing acute care use. You might want to figure out who are the super utilizers, who are the ones that come um, to the ED and get hospitalized a lot, even before asking anything else about the population themselves. Um, whereas if you want to uh, potentially reduce, you know, use of the post-acute care setting, then you can imagine that might be a completely different population. Um, so, so after a lot of uh, deliberation, and I'm only speaking, I, I, you know, there's a lot of people involved. David Labby was also part of it, um, and uh, many other people, um, a group of experts, researchers, uh, patient advocates, and, and multiple organizations and uh, health systems were represented in these series. Um, I think we ended up with a very, uh, we wanted a simple framework, uh, almost of a, we, the word starter set was used a lot. Um, that takes into account things that we that many people believe are important um, when it comes to the patient, and these are the medical complexity of the patient, and and also the social and behavioral factors that influence um, uh, that may influence uh, the the sort of the pro the progression of a patient through a healthcare delivery system. Um, and also, we wanted a, a seg uh, the taxonomy to be actionable. Um, uh, as well, uh, meaning that th there was there was potentially uh, we wanted to you know something that people could do something with uh, and, and 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 relevant to to multiple different people from different perspectives. So a taxonomy that if if you it didn't matter if you were a primary care doctor or hospital leader or a potentially a payer a taxonomy that everybody can sort of uh, um, understand. Um, 
And so I'm just uh, there's a slide here uh, that I can briefly talk through. Um, and so the at the end there was uh, six segments or six different groups that came out with it. Um, and I, uh, uh, David Labby, uh, I'll, I'll defer to you to speak a little bit about the behavioral and social, uh, the biopsychosocial framework. But so if you, you'll see that there's six different medical groups that came out of uh, this this work. Um, one of the groups was the uh, children with complex needs. Um, these are uh, these so. These are people from the age of obviously birth to 18, um, and actually we, we've done some empirical work uh, when uh, when you look at these these children, it, it's almost a, a bimodal distribution of the uh, of, of the complexity. There's the, a big group are the people that you know from from birth that have often congenital defects. Um, that require a lot of intensive care use, a lot of operations, a lot of um, sort of intense medical treatment. And, and then over time, the second group that becomes very complex is in the adolescent age. These are, these are often adolescents with, with uh, uh, certain uh, conditions that are often um, uh, actually very, uh, mediated uh, through a lot of mental health issues. Um, and then the next group uh, is the non-elderly disabled. Um, this group is, is, is a, you know, the, the, those individuals from the age of uh, 18 to 65 that either have a physical uh, disability or a cognitive mental disability. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, uh, uh, in, a, in a next slide, a little bit more about them. Uh, and, and, and I'll just keep going through the segmentation. So the next is the frail elderly. Um, these are individuals that um, have some sort of functional limitation um, uh, that that uh, that is present. Um, so when we we did a lot of empirical work on this, and if you take two patients with the exact same chronic conditions, but one patient has a functional limitation, either uh, a limitation with uh, performing activities of daily living um, or or something along those lines, uh, then they're much more likely. To become a high cost, high need patient over time than someone who does not. Um, and uh, the next group is the, uh, the complex. Uh, there's two groups really. There's the chronically ill, and and one is what we call the complex chronically ill, and the other ones were the just the chronically ill, non-complex. And the difference between these two groups was was two things. One, the complex group had more chronic conditions. Um, so the more chronic conditions you had, and I think that, you know, you, depending on what um, resource you use to define it, it, anywhere from three to six or more chronic conditions, um, the likelihood of you being a high cost, high need, and and by that I mean uh, being one of the most expensive patients, is much much higher. And the second is uh, dependence on the type of chronic condition. So there's so chronic conditions are not created equal, as, as many people know. Um, having history of um, uh, chronic kidney disease um, uh, is not the same as potentially, or, or, or a history of stroke is not the same um, as having, uh, you know, hypertension or hyperlipidemia. Um, and um, and so, so, so that's that's those are the two big differences. So the complex chronically ill, we use work. Uh, there was a lot of work from the Yale uh, core group um, that did a very heavy analytics and and said that there's about eight conditions out there, and these are things like chronic conditions um, that are the uh, share that have the biggest burden in terms of um, who. Um, the biggest burden in terms of utilization. So patients with acute myocardial infarction, pa patients with stroke, patients with history of chronic kidney disease, um, and congestive heart failure, and a few others are, are, are sort of the complex chronic conditions. So if you if if you look at the you know at at the data that you would see that uh, high cost high need patients by far have those big chronic conditions than the other ones. Um, and then the, finally the, the the last group was what the was the advancing illness group. Um, at some point in life, um, any of the other five groups um, advance to this group, and these are the ones that you know they have an end-stage organ failure, like sort of disease. So they have either end-stage COPD or end-stage heart failure, or oftentimes they have a you know a metastatic cancer, 
Um, and, and you can imagine in that group, uh, the, the, the way you would manage that group is, is potentially very different than, than a person with a disability. Um, and I'll stop there and then, and then there'll be uh, actually uh, one more slide. And then there's the behavior throughout all these things. There's the behavior and social factors that span across all groups. And so I just wanted to show you this uh, one slide about uh, how when you look at the spending patterns of, of different groups, they look very different. And when you examine these spending patterns, you can I, I would argue you can potentially see right away opportunities for targeting depending on what the, the underlying population is. So I have two examples here of a study we did recently uh, supported by the Commonwealth Fund um, where we looked at the frail elders and the young and disabled. This is in the Medicare population. We looked at the top 10% most expensive patients in Medicare, and then we bunched them and we grouped them into the different segments. And I'm just showing you two segments. And so you'll see you see different colors of, of boxes stacked up, um, and the each box uh, uh, represents uh, a summed up spending for a population. So the blue bar, for, for example, the frail elders spend. In the inpatient setting, you'll see the, the, the types of spending are inpatient, outpatient, post-acute care, Part D, which is drugs, uh, total carriers, physician cost, and, and, and procedures and tests. And then the last thing is durable medical equipment. And you'll see the frail elderly spend a lot in the inpatient setting, but the biggest driver of spending in, was in the post-acute care setting. This is the rehabs and nursing homes, home health, things like that. Whereas if you look at the under 65 disabled, the biggest spending in that group was actually driven by drugs. Um, and you know, if I, when you were to look at the data and you break up, so who are these young and disabled? You see, for example, the people with rheumatoid arthritis on biologics, which spend you know anywhere from a thousand to three thousand dollars a month um, on biologic drugs. Um, and so if you were to design, a, if you were trying to design an intervention, for example, to target these patients. It would, you, you would design something very different for the frail elder, for example, potentially programs that um, try to transition them from the post-acute care setting to a lower cost setting. Whereas if you were to target potentially the young and disabled, where you would focus a lot on on drugs and also, you know, potentially the, these are patients that see a lot of doctors also in the outpatient, so you see also a big, big spending pattern in the outpatient setting. So I'll stop here, and then I think David Labby was going to talk about the biopsychosocial uh, framework. Terrific. Thank you so much, uh, Jose. A good tutorial uh, and slides uh, that, don't forget, you can download uh, in addition to exploring uh, the playbook itself. All right. Well, let's turn to you now, David Labby. Uh, you know, the playbook in many ways wouldn't have been possible without the journey that's gone before it uh, over several many years, really, and you've been part of shaping that journey, uh, looking at so many different issues uh, as part of uh, really beginning to put some substance to working on the triple aim. So briefly tell us about that and then, you know, where you are right now and then zoom in on some of the care models in play today. And we'll uh, throw up that first uh, bio psychosocial framework, uh, and you can um, reference it however it makes sense. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you, Madge. Um, so I'm going to go back to some of the themes that were sort of articulated in the beginning, which is it's really important to know what you're trying to accomplish, and it's even more important to know, uh, really understand the population. The, the biopsychosocial framework, I think, is familiar to everyone. This is a version of it. Um, and I must say that the journey that we've gone in the last 15 years is really um, understanding what this framework means in a deeper and deeper way. I think the point that uh, you got to understand your goals is really, it's also you got to understand that your goals can change. And certainly our journey over 15 years really quickly has illustrated that. Um, we started out in, in a medic, as a Medicaid managed care plan who was paying its provider network really poorly. And one of the things we promised our providers is we know our population is complex. We will provide you with support in dealing with some of the social issues. And so we had a small group of nurses who basically were aligned with clinics that could help uh, by referral, you know, patients who seemed to get lost in the system or didn't show up for appointments or had a, a cast on and needed to make sure that they weren't homeless and the cast was getting wet, those kinds of things. That worked fine and it actually really did help us connect with our network. But then there was a financial crisis and the leadership of the, the managed care plan said, you guys are doing great, but can you lower costs? Um, 
And this was in, you know, the early 2000s when uh, disease management was sort of in its heyday. And we said, and they asked us, you know, shouldn't we have a diabetes program? And we said, well, you know, our patients are not exactly just having diabetes. They have a whole bunch of things. It turns out, in fact, in retrospect, you know, if you look at our population, our highest risk 10% have an average of eight conditions, uh, physical health conditions, and two to three uh, behavioral health conditions, including substance use. It's a really complicated population. So we, you know, we ended up hiring social workers, hiring behavioral CDCs, uh, trying to do everything telephonically. We got some, we trained them in uh, motivational interviewing. We created structured care plans, predictive modeling. We do a lot of things that actually you can still see um, in some of the models that you find in the playbook. I mean, if you look at Care Management Plus, I would say Care Management, which is one of the um, models that you could see was developed out of Air Mountain Health, David Dore. Uh, if you look at that, that's sort of what we were trying to do. Uh, but the question then becomes, is that really the match for the population that you need? And I think it's, uh, every program uh, has uh, is trying to solve a problem for a population, and, and that alignment is really important. Um, as we began to look at the issue of cost, we also began to visit some of the other programs. We visited Johns Hopkins Guided Care, really interesting model also in the playbook. They were using, early on, using nurses to follow uh, not like we were, but follow patients in the hospital and back to home and connecting them to primary care. It was really a nurse navigation model. Um, we learned from them. We also learned from uh, Commonwealth Care Alliance up in Boston who was at risk for a population and was doing even more drastic things, putting teams in place in primary care clinics, supporting those primary care clinics, at one point using community health workers to outreach the folks. And it really sort of helped us think about, well, if we're going to take care of this population, we need to get closer to the population. And uh, part of that journey was also the journey of healthcare transformation that was occurring nationally. Uh, there was much more interest in medical home. We were trying to help uh, uh, providers, primary care providers, build medical home teams, PCPDH teams. And we realized that what we were doing at the health plan level really needed to migrate into the primary care practice and started doing some uh, small steps to put our staff in clinics and ultimately uh, made a huge leap where we basically switched the program so that it is really primary care based because we want the primary care uh, clinics to be accountable. But the other switch, which is even more important, is we, we told our staff, do less telephonically, spend 60% or more of your time in the in the community talking to these folks. And that actually changed our vision of what this biopsychosocial model looked like. What we found, and this is a Medicaid population, so it's a low-income population, what we found is this is a population that has really had really challenging lives, starting in early childhood, you know, chaotic families, not prepared for school, struggling in school, running away, uh, getting involved with drugs early on. A lot of families have been through homelessness, um, a lot of, um, getting involved with the law, incarceration, repeated homelessness, increasing substance abuse. And you know, that kind of population, it, it made it clear that what we were trying to do telephonically just wasn't going to get there. And that the real issue for this population was really about engagement and really creating a connection with them. And that's a, a lesson that I think a lot of the plan, plan, uh, a lot of the programs that are dealing with um, uh, low-income populations, the Camden Coalition, um, uh, of healthcare providers has done a lot of this work. We visited them, a lot of interesting stuff. We went out with one of their teams that really helped us see the power of, you know, spending time in somebody's home after they've been in the hospital and, and just understanding what that home situation looks like and the reality of their lives. And um, we spent time with a lot of other different programs and it, it really helped us understand that we needed to have a different kind of workforce uh, and we needed to deal with things that were outside the medical model, really. Uh, and it was really about engagement, a lot of trauma recovery. Uh, we call it the Health Resilience. It is called the Health Resilience Program now. It really focuses on uh, trauma-informed care, a trauma view. And so it's really changed our notion of what that biopsychosocial framework is for our population. I don't want to say that that's the only way to do it. There's lots of different populations. Uh, clearly, if you're dealing with a elderly population, as you'll see that many of the the models are there's different depending on the elderly population there's uh, lots of different models that work uh, Caremore is a really comprehensive model that you'll find in the playbook um, they have their model was based on starting with hospitalists and just sort of moving out of 
hospitalists into extensivists who moved into the community to create a team that had social workers, behaviorists, who went out in the community, people who did home care. There's lots of models in the playbook where the problem that they're trying to solve is really a problem of um, what do we do for people who are homebound? Compl you know, they may be stable and homebound, they may have adequate resources, but they don't have access to healthcare. So MedStar is one of those. Uh, there's lots of different kinds of programs um, that reach out. And there's also, you know, I don't want to say bad things about telephonic programs, but the right, uh, if you're salt, the, the problem you're trying to solve will drive whether um, that's right. There's a great program around depression called Impact, also in the playbook, which is really a, a care management program out of primary care supported by specialists. Definitely the work looking to, very evidence-based, very effective. This last slide basically just makes that sort of graphic point that I was making before. You really got to understand, well, there's two things. Number one, you got to understand what are you trying to accomplish? And uh, there's an interesting uh, review in uh, the that there's lots of different things to accomplish. Is it, you know, are you trying to lower readmissions um, and you need to think about transitions out of hospitals? Are you trying to increase your HCC scores? I know programs, uh, not, none of them are actually profiled in the, uh, in the playbook, but they are actually, the thing that they found in their program was changing the HCC scores, and that was a huge return on investment uh, by, by doing home visits. Um, but this thing, the, this cartoon basically tells you that, you know, I think we would be on the left uh, for a Medicaid population, they have medical issues, but the social and behavioral issues are huge. And unless you deal with those, which are the major drivers, you're never going to get to the medical issues. But there are certainly problems with, um, you know, people who have just complex medical conditions. I know another program that's an ambulatory ICU program. Um, and basically, if you talk to them, they, the, the providers in that program say, we're primary care. Our job is really to protect our complex patients from the specialists. Too many tests, too many interventions that they don't need. We go to visits with the, we go to visits with our patients to the specialty office to make sure that everything is aligned. So again, you've got to make, I think that alignment between uh, what the population needs, what you're trying to accomplish, what tools you have is really the key. Um, I've talked about a bunch of programs. It's really fun to go through the playbook and uh, follow the, the leads, which are, um, which will help you look at the different kinds of programs. But I think that the start point is saying, what problem are we trying to solve? So uh, I'll leave it there, and we'll uh, have more time for a comment. Thank you so much, David. And we've heard now we've got a sort of a, an overview, at least, and we do want to um, maybe we can get the uh, uh, the link to the playbook back into the chat screen again. It's it's in there in the scroll, but uh, place it in there again. So this is something you're going to need to, if you haven't already, spend some time with, and uh, hopefully you'll begin to form a picture and make some of the linkages that we're trying to do right now. I want to ask you, David, just one follow-up question, and maybe others may have a, before we go to chat, which is, are you, or were you, uh, as an advisor in this project, kind of surprised by any of the models that uh, came forward? Did you feel that you had a pretty good sense of the lay of the land, or did you find out about some things uh, that you might not have thought about before? I, mean, I think you always find out things that you didn't find before. I mean, I, um, I knew about the Caremore model. I was really impressed going back and looking at it more deeply, all the things that they had put in. It sort of reminded me, um, you know, sort of what IHI talks about is system transformation, that what we're, when, when you take on a uh, high-risk population, high-complexity population, there's so many pieces that you need to deal with. And we tend to focus on one of them. Uh, you know, we've learned that locally. We don't just do care management out of the uh, clinics. We also have transitional care. We have folks in the 911 system. We have folks just, you know, we're sort of build, rebuilding the system from within. And I think looking at some of the more comprehensive ones give you an idea of where you want to go, what your goal is. Um, so, so you have to balance that with knowing that you can only build a program piece by piece. So um, it's just interesting how far some people have gone with creating comprehensive models versus just, you know, single problem solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. All right, well, thanks. All right, we have a good lay of the land. Uh, uh, we're now opening it up uh, for questions and comments. Some of them have started to float in. Uh, John, do you want to just remind people uh, how to make sure that everyone sees their comments uh, in the chat? 
Yeah, just make sure that your questions and comments are uh, sent to the all participants down in the chat. Okay, sounds good. Um, one question that was raised right away, maybe I'll start with you, Marion, uh, is a sense of how things can change over time uh, the with the populations themselves uh, as far as what uh, circumstances uh, might be most, you know, impacting what's what's going on. Um I think that can, you know, that's that's the story of life in in many ways, or one hopes that maybe people even improve. Uh, any thoughts about that at all, as far as kind of how models uh, might, or how that even can be tracked in some way? Yeah, so maybe I can begin, and then Jose can jump in um, with any study longitudinal studies that he has been has been examining. But I think that that. That has been a perennial problem in looking at the high cost population. It's sort of referred to as regression to the mean, which is essentially that this year's pool of the highest cost patients aren't necessarily going to be next year's highest cost patients, even without any intervention. So the problem with a lot of these models is that since they're not randomized, it's hard to separate the confounding confounding factors and variables and understand what success can be attributed to the enhanced care management model or whatever care model you're putting into place and what was just sort of human the human condition and the fact that people are continually going into and out of this population. And maybe, Jose, if you could speak to a little bit more how you've thought about that. I know that there are a few randomized controlled trials in the works um, for high needs, high cost populations, but that's a re- there's a real dearth of evidence of that nature that we found in putting together the playbook. No, yeah, I, I think um, I, a lot of the data actually on high cost, high needs um, has not um, done a really good longitudinal study, meaning track patients over time to see, um, you know, as you said, like who are the patients that are persistently high cost over time and stay high cost over time. Versus who are the patients that, you know, are high cost one year and then they go back to regular mean spending. Um, and so actually we've, we've done a lot of work that, that is, you know, pretty far along for the last year or so looking at, at two populations. Uh, one population is the, the, the entire Medicare population. And another population is the dual, the duals, the full duals. Uh, th- those are covered both by Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and we've tracked them over three years, soon to add another fourth year. Um, and what happens is if you look at the most expensive patients in year one, so um, uh, it's, uh, so, and we define the most expensive, you can define them in multiple ways, but we, we just define them as, as the top decile. So the most expensive patient, the top 10% most expensive patients, in, and I'll talk about the Medicare program first. And then out of those top 10%, who is still in that uh, remaining top decile? Um, and, and then if you look a year later, over three years, and actually what happens is uh, one out of every four medic, uh, Medicare patients that was high cost in year one remains high cost in year, um, uh, in year three, or so all three years. And actually, so, so a quarter of the patients, half the patients actually go back to regular mean spending. Um, and then the other half um, are the ones that, that transition, they keep transitioning from high cost to maybe stay high cost another year and then go back to means level spending and then or potentially the other way around that they're, they're high cost non-high cost high cost year three so a quarter 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 and then when you look at the characteristics of the patients that are a qu- the, you know the quarter high cost most expensive patients over time what you'll find is that the disabled group is by far one of the biggest contributors of, of that group because they're often young they often have chronic conditions that don't actually end up um um, putting their lives at imminent risk. You see a lot of end-stage renal disease. You see a lot of the people with the rheumatoid arthritis. And when you look at the spending patterns of what's it, what's the biggest drivers, they have, sure, they have a lot of inpatient spending, but that's not the biggest driver. The biggest driver is actually uh, 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 drugs. 
So people that are persistently high cost over time have a huge proportion of their spending as being drugs. Um, whereas the ones that are trans, if you look at the ones that were high cost one year and then go back to regular mean spending, they had a lot of inpatient spending that one high cost year, and then they just go back to the regular. And so then you can start imagining. Um, so I'll, I'll, and then if you look at the dual population, actually, they're much more likely. Uh, so among the entire duals, uh, one in two duals remains high cost over all uh, across three years. So it's a pretty stable group. Um, again, they're often younger with a lot of medical social complexity with conditions that don't necessarily uh, lead to imminent death. It's uh, it's all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks, Jose. Um, interesting comments coming in. Somebody has asked about mortality. Uh, anything learned about the mortality rates or if you um, – I'm not quite sure how if that's captured so much in this resource, uh, but I don't know if you look across – if that's too big a question, maybe we'll find a, a simple rate. But looking across, maybe – I don't know if, John, we can get back to those groupings of patient population uh, ones that Jose had. But what about – what do we know about uh, mortality? Yeah, so actually, so that that's, a, you know, end-of-life spending. And so yeah. one thing to note is, like, as people are near end-of-life, you spend a lot of money. So if you look at, you know, the, as a high-cost patients, uh, often many of them end up dying either that year or the, or the following year. So, so certainly there's a lot of spending uh, that occurs at the end of life. And, and you know, is, the question oftentimes is that is, well, what about, End of life spending, or you know, it was potentially preventable, and it's a very difficult question. Um, for a lot of the studies we actually did, we actually excluded decedents. We only included people that were alive all three years, and the reason being is because we were more interested in, in sort of understanding the ones that you know are going to stay in the system for a very long time. Um, but yes, certainly, if you're a high cost patient one year, the likelihood of you dying either that year or the following year is like really high. Um, it's about uh, in the if you're frail, elder, for example, about one in five um, don't make it beyond the year if they're in the top ten percent spending mm. one year. Interesting. Okay, thanks. Question uh, about somebody has asked something about whether most of the models uh, featured in the playbook thus far have, in one way or another, uh, benefit fitted from some kind of payment system, uh, capitation, or in one way or another uh, that gave certain freedoms to sort of arrange services uh, in ways that would, uh, you know, help patients gain the most. Um, I don't know if that's a uh, – obviously, we've got a big experiment going on uh, in Oregon, so maybe, David, if you want to speak to that, but I'm curious whether – is that a thread that goes through some of the more outstanding models uh, in the playbook? Absolutely. <laughs> it's really easy to answer that one. Okay. When, peop when people are at risk, they start looking at the world differently. They start saying, well, uh, you know, it's not just it's that whole moving from volume to value, from services to outcomes. It definitely changes the perspective. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of the whole accountable care or coordinated care organization model, which is how do you shift risk from insurance models, basically, into practice models. So, yes, risk is a huge driver. But it gets translated, I and mean, as I said before, there's lots of ways in which people see value uh, for, in, and you'll see in the playbook, you'll see a lot of Medicare Advantage plans. Um, HCC scores or risk scores are really important. Um, you know, programs that actually, uh, I know one program uh, that its return on investment initially was really about the HCC scores, uh, which gave them time to really figure out the nuts and bolts of the clinical model. Um, so there's different, I mean, you got to think about the value proposition more broadly, I think, than people tend to do. It's also, you know, just listening to the Jose talk, a lot of folks do come and go into this high-risk population. And so as a system or as a, as a clinical system, you would say, we want to know, we want to know more about these people. We don't want to be, we want to be able to have sort of real-time understanding that they're either stable or they're hitting instability. So I think a lot of, and, and you don't, a lot of the models for evaluation really undermine good work because they expect that we're going to get a return on investment in 12 months. And most of the practitioners that I know think that that is completely unrealistic and that you're probably not going to really see the effectiveness of the program for a couple of years, maybe three years. That's my experience. So I think it's really important for people to understand that, you know, um, 
we're just learning. This is a, a learning experiment. Uh, you know, Jeff Brenner from Camden Coalition, <laughs> I heard him uh, say that, you know, we're in the bloodletting, I mean, sense of really primitive kind of approaches to complex care, and we've got to give ourselves time to learn. And that's, I think messaging that to stakeholders is important. We've got to learn, as you started out by saying, Madge, it's what we know about the population uh, is is really helpful. It's going to take a it's going to take a while to understand a what's happening in the population and b how can you impact that. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Um, I think we can be our own worst enemy. Thank you. There's a, a couple of comments uh, related into two issues. One is whether there's a workforce uh, capable of you know kind of really taking hold of all this valuable kind of information. Uh, and 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 running with it, and I don't know if kind of where that thread uh, has come up in in putting together elements of the playbook or what you've learned about that. And excuse me, and and I'm not sure I'm, if I'm getting this wrong. Uh, folks on the chat who are speaking to this, feel free to correct me. Uh, some implication that if there isn't the skill set, that there's a tendency also for people to be ignored. And there's another kind of more um, unfortunate kind of segmentation, which is sort of patients you don't want to deal with. I mean, part of this playbook is really talking about going headlong into some of the hardest uh, situations sometimes. So let me start first with workforce and capability and whether, um, I don't know whether that's something uh, Jose sure. can I I'll, I'll just say I'll, yeah. I'll say one thing mm-hmm. to it um, and then maybe David Levy has more to say about it but uh, I think I think as far as workforce the people having people that to deal with these complex issues it's it's there it's just a matter of of being in a system that that essentially that um, kind of uh, there's an incentive for, for for all the players in that care workforce to come together, um, and you know, CareMore was brought up as one potential, as one you know, sort of leading model. And the reason I think they're able to do it is because they have all the incentives aligned. They're a vertically integrated, uh, capitated uh, uh, system, right? So they, they often deal with a lot with Medicare Advantage patients, and they often actually they salary. Um, also the, the 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 providers as well. So so there's an incentive to keep costs down in that system, and so when you know when they so they focus a lot on the frail elders, for example, um, and and a lot of their interventions are actually just a lot like exercising exercise and strength type um, interventions for their frail elders. Um, there's a lot on home care. Um, they have a lot of mental health services, and why is that? Because at the end of the day, is it's their bottom line at stake and it's their patients at stake so they're accountable for that group of patients um, there's also rating in terms of insurance plans so that also there's an incentive to do good in that kind of system um, another potential system you, you can think about that also is 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 um, ha- has the right incentives is potentially accountable care organizations as well um, accountable it's a group of providers all you know that spans the entire care continuum of a patient um, and so so I think it's just a matter of having the right care delivery models and the right incentives to bring the workforce together. And unfortunately, for a lot of patients, they're not under such a system. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, David, did you want to say anything uh, about that? Um, I, uh, that may have been sort of a sure. bi- big fat, but go ahead. Feel free to add. So, I mean, um, one of the lessons that we've learned, I think, is that there is a workforce there. It's not a medical workforce. It's not a clinical workforce. And what we do in medicine is we think that a nurse or somebody who's licensed and certified has to do all the work uh, because that's what we're used to. Um, But I think that more and more people are understanding that community health workers are a really powerful workforce. Um, You know, there's a, you know, the question of how you engage people, uh, how you um, get them more uh, activated. Actually, we found that um, by and large, if you have a peer workforce, they are extremely effective in that kind of work. If they have lived experience, a shared lived experience, that's extremely powerful. And you know, just on a uh, on a financial level, they're a lot cheaper than nurses or social workers. So there is a workforce out there, but I think you have to think outside the medical walls and outside the box about what you're trying to accomplish and what are the key things, what are the key skills that you need and who has those skills and who has those skills in ways that you hadn't perhaps thought about before. 
So um, I believe that there's a huge, this, this is one of the cost or the financial impacts is shifting from highly professionally, high cost uh, a workforce to a much more um, sort of community-based workforce uh, that adds to community development as well as adds to education of individuals and has lots of value in its own, but is also extremely effective in dealing with some of these issues. Especially, I'm going to speak, I think that's true certainly in the Medicaid world. I think it's also true in the Medicare world. There's a lot of things we think nurses or some need to do, but others and, and our doctors need to do, but others actually can do better at a lower cost. Okay, thank you. Uh, a question uh, in the middle of uh, vibrant discussion here. Somebody is wondering uh, what defines uh, high need, high cost in terms of utilization? Is there anybody who, uh, somebody literally has asked about number of hospitalizations in one year or mm. visits to the ED. Is, is that uh, used? Yeah, so so the, it depends, you know, depending on the resource or the or the, the you know the health system or the program that you're looking at, people that's a very people people define it very differently. Um, for a lot of our work, we went straight for where the money is. We we defined it purely by spending. So if you were, and we drew the threshold at the top 10 percent, that's one way to do it. Um, the reason being is because um, if you to use a and the other people, for example, there's there's a great program out of Chicago called um, uh, the Comprehensive Care Physician Model, where where they target uh, the super utilizers or the ones that come into the hospital a lot. This is uh, David uh, Meltzer's work, um, where you, you know they they if you I can't exactly remember how they define it, but they define it basically on the number of either ED visits or if you had a certain number of ED visits or admissions in X amount of time, then you were enrolled into their program, um, which is also kind of an extensivist model that CareMore uses. Um, so it's sort of, you know, it's, there's different definitions. So, so it just depends, again, what the purpose of the underlying intervention or the purpose of the underlying program. One thing I would say is if you only focus on utilization, I think you miss a lot. Um, you miss. There's a lot of people that never once come into the emergency room or never once come into the hospital, but they're still one of the most expensive patients, and it's because the you know there are people that live in, for example, in duals uh, or uh, in long-term care. They just you know spend a lot of money. You know, if you, for the the average high-cost dual spends anywhere from a I think over $150,000 per year. And most of that spending is all long-term care, especially, you know, some of the duels in New York City. Um, so if util utilization is always, you know, again, there, there's some caveats only looking at utilization to define high cost. Thank you. Marion, may I ask you a question about um, the, to the extent that the playbook uh, either found or tapped into innovations coming from states themselves. Uh, somebody was wondering kind of what might the ingredients be that, you know, is this coming from, you know, managed care organizations, states themselves, more uh, health, health systems uh, kind of acting uh, more independently. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so <clears throat> first of all, we do have on the playbook currently some resources about what states are doing. So either states that have Medicaid accountable care organizations or sort of state innovations and in payment models or et cetera. But I will say, you know, maybe this is a good time to talk about the playbook as it's evolving. Yes. Yeah, so, so the playbook as you see it today is really just the beginning. Um, the site is planning continual updates, regular resource updates, as you saw from the chat from Doug that care more, which has been mentioned a lot. There's going to be a, a new resource coming next week, the Commonwealth Fund case study on care more. So check back for that. But then also a lot of original content. So this might be kind of commentary, blogs, Q with thought leaders, other media, but then importantly, possibly even other ways to access content like a state map where people, users or visitors could have a standard template for uh, uh, sort of nominating the activity that's going on in their state so that we can really build out that robust state activity. So that's what I would say about what um, 
what's coming up in the playbook. Also, we are hoping to, we've heard a lot about the Intermountains and the Commonwealth Carolinas and the Camdens of the world, but we want to make sure that there's people see peer information. So wherever they are on their journey, not just at the leading end where there's sort of a capitated payment model and a very resourced model for transforming care for individuals with complex needs. So we're really seeing an opportunity to feature kind of practical, tangible information from organizations that users will see as peers. And, you know, in, con- in conjunction with the playbook development, I'll just mention that IHI had the opportunity to collate some of its best information and learning from working with this population over the past, you know, five to ten years in the form of the Care Redesign Guide, which was actually also funded by the Commonwealth Fund. And it's featured as a resource, but that's the kind of practical how-to information. So people love the granular case study information. Everybody wants more on ROI, value proposition, total cost of care. And we, along with the field, are working to build that out with some targeted outreach to organizations that are doing some really great work. But then also those steps for people who might not have the time or the resources to completely transform their care model, but need to know the one or two things that they can do next week or next month in order to make some hard decisions around improving care for this population. So that's the that's the essence of what we'll be building out in year two. So stay tuned. All right. Thanks. Well, that's a lot to look forward to in addition to the rich resources uh, that are already there. All right, John, should I turn to you for just a quick sec? Go yeah, we ahead. just wanted to let you know about the IHI uh, the Office Practice Summit, which is taking place on April 20th, 22nd, 20 to the 22nd down in Orlando. Um, we have some new tracks this year for folks who um, uh, would be uh, who might be interested, who listen to WIHI. Uh, they include tracks on health equity, leadership, transforming the primary care practice, joy in work, population and community health, and using QI to drive for results. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in today's topic on complex uh, pati- uh, patients with complex needs, uh, person-centered care might be a great track for you to check out down in Orlando in April. So if you're interested, visit IHI.org slash summit and uh, check it out. Thanks a lot, John. I want to uh, do. I do want to acknowledge all the wonderful comments in the chat, and thank you all for your participation. Great to see you there, Doug McCarthy from the Commonwealth Fund, uh, and always the in, in amazing resources coming out of there uh, that can keep uh, this uh, information going and growing. The resources. Also, seeing our own IHI's Corey Seven, uh, working who's worked very hard in this space for many many years. IHI has a Care Redesign Guide uh, that's also available and now included as a resource within the playbook uh, to kind of give you also additional sense of uh, the um, the ways in which uh, many, many organizations IHI uh, has worked with have evolved over time in many different settings and some of the things that have been learned along the way. All right, I, I'm going to uh, Marion sort of preview of version two. That'll be a good excuse for us to reassemble everybody and uh, I'm going to just get some final remarks from David and then Jose and then we'll wrap things up uh, David uh, in terms of where you see <laughs> looking in your crystal ball kind of uh, things that you might want to really prioritize or push on right now well, I think for vulnerable populations, is we need to really think outside the medical system. I think that, you know, we it looks like we're going to have certainly less money in Medicaid, and we don't really know what funding for other uh, government programs are, but we're going to need to think about uh, innovative models to really get value, and I don't think we're going to get them, I think we can get them outside the healthcare system in partnerships, which are always complicated, but certainly worth the investment, and I think it's going to be much more of a a community effort than a health system effort as we go forward to deal with complex patients because their complexity is not just medical mostly. Okay. Thank you so much, David. Jose, sort of parting words. Uh, you're in the midst of a lot of really important research and uh, contributed so much already. Uh, final words for today? No, no. Again, uh, I just wanted to say thank you for, for having me today. And I think well, one thing we didn't talk about much, uh, but I think it's going to be very important is, is the way technology influences how we deliver care and I think that we're going to start seeing um, as David is mentioning there's going to be a push away from hospitals primary care uh, clinics to much more what we can do 
um, through technology and mobile technology and, and the web just in caring for these complex populations. Okay, sounds pretty good. Uh, reminds me of you know some of our programming that we've done here talking about Project Echo and sort of ways to distribute uh, the skills and the access to the resources. So one large virtual community yeah. hitting many communities. Well, this has been a great learning experience for me working with all of you, so I want to thank my panelists and also thank you for your very valuable comments in the chat. A reminder to everybody, you can download this chat when you get off. You can download the slides, uh, you'll, uh, and, and you can find all of it on IHI.org as of tomorrow morning, so you'd also find resources and the audio for the program. Uh, next up on WIHI on April 6th, we're going to talk about who's your healthcare proxy. Uh, not unrelated to what we're talking about now in terms of uh, choosing a healthcare proxy or being a proxy for someone across many, many different populations. So we're looking forward to doing that with folks uh, working hard in the conversation project and some others. So uh, information on that on our website as we wind up today. Uh, you can also, uh, if you go to iTunes and access this as uh, a podcast, you can subscribe and that way you won't miss uh, future programs. They'll just come to you and be downloaded automatically. Any questions whatsoever, any confusion, you're not sure what you're supposed to do next, you can email info at IHI.org. Great staff in there. Always know where to point folks to. And feel free to suggest future topics. A great group of people help us do this program and make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morse, Jameson Case, Stephanie Garrigar-Funkel, Vicki Minden, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Haley Ladd. We've got some help from Christine also now in marketing and a special thanks to Catherine Mather for her help uh, creating the show today and uh, being on deck uh, at the computer. It's my privilege, as you know, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care for most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good rest of the day, everyone.